welcome to the December 2019 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I've managed to cling on to this job for two episodes now, which means this is already more successful than Sam Allardyce's ill-fated stint as England manager. Don't worry, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before the power goes to my head and I'm embroiled in some kind of corruption scandal or other. Regular listeners will know the drill by now, so later on I'll be joined by Steve Lee and Maddie Kane to talk about retirement targets for DC members, but before we get to that, here's some of this month's pensions news. If you listened to last month's podcast, you'll know the big news at the time was the publication of the pensions bill. You may also have noticed that in the very short period between the recording and release of that podcast, Parliament agreed to hold an early general election on the 12th of December. I'm not normally one for conspiracy theories, but I can't help thinking this is all part of an elaborate plot to sabotage my first episode. Anyway, what does all this mean for the pensions bill? Well, Parliament was dissolved on the 6th of November, and when that happens, all unfinished parliamentary business falls, including any bills that haven't received royal assent. In this case, that includes the pensions bill, so as it stands, this has ceased to exist and will have no effect. However, it's likely that the next government will introduce some kind of pensions bill shortly after they take office. The Conservative manifesto indicates that they would reintroduce the previous bill, and Labour's manifesto specifically confirms that they would press ahead with legislation for collective DC schemes and the pensions dashboard. In practice, the proposals in the previous bill had pretty broad cross-party support, so regardless of who forms the next government, we'll probably see something that looks very similar to what we already had. So we're probably heading in the same direction, but it might take a bit longer to get there. One thing that doesn't grind to a halt during the election process is the work of the pensions regulator. They've announced that next year they'll publish two consultations on changes to the way DB scheme funding is regulated. The first, which could be with us as soon as January, will focus on options for a clearer framework for DB funding, with the second on a revised code of practice following later in the year. TPR have already started trailing some of the proposals, and their comments so far suggest there will be significant pressure on DB funding and investment strategies, which could lead to stronger funding targets and the need for additional contributions. One key change we could see is a twin-track approach to compliance, with a fast-track route for schemes who meet a number of high-level tests around things like long-term targets, journey plans and investment risk, and a bespoke route which will provide more flexibility, but also require more detailed evidence around risk management and mitigation. Look out for more on this when the first consultation is published early next year. They say consultations are like buses, so, well, you can see where this is going. The DWP have issued a consultation on how to deliver shorter, simpler annual benefit statements for DC members to make it easier for members to understand the information being provided and plan for the retirement they want. The proposals have broad support across the industry, and they're consistent with the approach Aon have been using for DC benefit statements for some time. The DWP are also looking for input on how these statements should interact with other innovative communication tools, including the pensions dashboard. The consultation runs until the 20th of December, so if you have strong views on this topic and you've already done all your Christmas shopping, there's still plenty of time to contribute. On the 1st of November, Equitable Life's policyholders voted overwhelmingly in favour of proposals to convert their with profits policies to unit-linked funds and then transfer these, together with Equitable's existing unit-linked funds, to utmost life and pensions. If the High Court gives its approval, which is expected in early December, then trustees of schemes that hold with profits policies with Equitable will have until the 13th of December to confirm their investment choices. 
Trustees in this position will need to consider whether to pass the decision on to the relevant members and what the default option should be where members haven't made their own decisions. Trustees who want to move away from Upmost to a different provider after the initial transfer should register their intentions to do so with Equitable Life as soon as possible. A few months ago, we told you about a joint working group that's been set up as part of the government's green finance strategy. It's called the Pensions Climate Risk Industry Group, and it's made up of representatives from government departments, trustees, consultants, investment managers, civil society groups, and other representative bodies. The group has now confirmed its plans to consult on draft guidance for pension trustees in early 2020. The guidance will build on the global framework already set out by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and it will aim to help trustees identify climate-related financial risks and opportunities and then to assess, manage, and disclose these. And finally, registration for Aon's 2020 pensions conferences is now open. The content team are already hard at work on the agenda, and as usual, there'll be lots of real-life examples and plenty of opportunities for interaction. This year's conferences are running in Manchester, Bristol, Edinburgh, Leeds, Birmingham, and twice in London, all of those either in February or March. If you haven't already registered, you can follow the link in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. If you listened to last month's podcast, you may remember me telling you the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association had unveiled a set of retirement living standards. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Maddie Kane and Steve Lee to talk about these in a bit more detail. Maddie, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to just briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Maddie and I head up DC Governance. In my role, I help shape the DC landscape with my interactions with the regulator and other industry bodies. Hi, I'm Steve Lee. I'm a senior consultant in the DC pensions team here at Aon and I work on all of our DC research. Okay, so Maddie, if I start with you, um, what exactly are the PLSA's retirement living standards? So these are a set of national retirement living standards which have recently been launched by the PLSA in order to help savers visualise their financial future and plan their journey to retirement in a more informed, relevant and engaging manner. The standards provide savers with a guide as to how much annual income they may need in their retirement based on the standard of living they're aiming for. The PLSA has defined three standards to keep it simple, minimum, moderate and comfortable, with a different basket of goods underpinning each type of lifestyle. The value of each basket of goods has then been used to determine annual income targets for single people and for couples. So for a single person, these can be rounded to 10,000 a year to achieve a minimum standard of living, 20,000 for a moderate standard of living and 30,000 for a comfortable standard of living. So increments of 10,000. And for couples, the corresponding rounded figures are 15,000, 30,000 and 45,000. So increments of 15,000. Okay, so Steve, where have they uh, come up with these numbers from? Well, it's been quite a detailed process, very thorough. The PLSA worked with a couple of organisations. So they worked with the Centre of Research in Social Policy at Loughborough University, who took the Joseph Rowntree research actually on minimum income standards uh, and this is the income that people need to to reach what's what's thought of as a, a minimum socially acceptable standard of living in the UK, based on what members of the public actually think. 
Uh, and this is calculated by, as Maddie refers to, specifying what a basket of goods and services that somebody would actually need in order to um, participate in society and, and meet their sort of basic minimum living needs. What the PLSA then did was set up some focus groups at different areas around the country and they looked at the minimum level and then got agreement and sort of public consensus on a moderate level and a comfortable level of living standard, essentially. And this looked at things like in, in this basket of goods, things like housing costs, transport costs, um, food and drink, holiday and leisure, clothing and personal, and also helping others and buying sort of gifts and presents for people. So it it's aims to cover kind of all the different costs and expenditure that somebody could have. So, Maddie, having seen the, the output from this and seen the numbers, do you think these are kind of appropriate targets for individuals to, to aim for? As a broad indication of income needs in retirement, yes, I think they're appropriate targets and designed in a way that's meaningful to savers. And they cover a wide range of goods and services that are relevant to the vast majority in their retirement. These standards are not entirely out of line with the methodology we've been using to advise our clients and enable them to support their members in pursuit of good member outcomes. In this respect, we actually compared the moderate standard of living for an average UK wage earner based on our methodology, and the results were broadly the same. The standards will also need to remain appropriate through time. Therefore, the expectation is that they will change at regular intervals for the effects of inflation and also the changing nature of the basket of goods. So, Steve, this won't be the first time we've seen some rules of thumb for DC schemes. How do these differ from what we've already seen before? Well, previously, the replacement ratio was widely used, which was, it was based on the days of defined benefits. For example, work for 40 years and you'll get two thirds of salary at retirement. Yep. This this was adopted for DC, but didn't really work. And it was, it was in reality more like one third uh, at retirement plus state pension. Um, the Pensions Commission evolved this a bit further and said, actually, you need a different replacement ratio for different levels of salary. But... As, as you can see, it's not particularly easy to follow for pension professionals, never mind for members, uh, especially those a long way out for retirement. It's, it's really hard to visualize your future salary, what that's going to be. And there was no kind of real link with what's enough and what's enough for my sort of lifestyle. Um, other rules of thumb like contribute half your age, sometimes are just plain wrong, so not very helpful. Um, I think the retirement living standards based on a, an aspiration for a, a lifestyle in retirement, a standard of living, much easier for members to understand. And also they've got some choice here. It's not a case of saying you need this figure. It's more of a case of you need this minimum level, which should be relatively easy to achieve based on state pension and auto enrollment minimum. Uh, and this is the lifestyle you get. If you want a better lifestyle, then this is how much you're going to need for a moderate or this is how much you're going to need for a comfortable level. So a lot easier for members. So, I mean, Maddie, as, as Steve's just said, member engagement in DC schemes has always been a bit of a challenge. Do you think this is a positive step in the right direction? Absolutely. I think that any attempt to make the language of pensions easy for savers is a positive step, both easy in terms of interpretation of the message being delivered and the steps a saver can take off the back of that message. If we look at the PLSA research, that shows that a staggering 77% of savers don't know how much they'll need in their retirement, and 51% believe that the minimum automatic enrolment contribution rate is enough to provide a good or adequate retirement outcome. 
So the expectation is that these standards could go a long way in encouraging savers to think about their retirement and the outcome they want at an earlier stage in their lives and when they can do something about it, as well as empowering savers to make informed decisions at the right time. So for people who are responsible for running pension schemes, how, how can they use these retirement living standards to help engage with their members? So just to recap, the standards give members an indication of what they need to be targeting to achieve a particular standard of living. Trustees can help members through their communication and engagement campaigns, driving awareness of these simple rules of thumb. Um, but more can be done. Members will need to understand how they can then translate these annual income targets into a fund value and then into appropriate contribution rates. There are a number of strategies that can be adopted and multiple strategies would likely appeal to different types of members. Our DC Analytics advice, for instance, which makes use of such targets, supports trustees with identification of groups and subgroups who may not be on target for a given outcome and enables them to focus on targeted campaigns. And for sponsors, they can consider their contribution strategy. For instance, whether a contribution tiers consider whether defaulting members onto the highest tier, but with the option to opt back down, could support the drive towards better member outcomes. Right, and Steve, from a sort of AOM perspective, how are we planning to make use of these retirement living standards when helping our clients? Well, we've been discussing these a lot within AON and actually what we found is there are so many different parts of the business that um, could make use of these retirement living standards and fully intend to make use of them. So we could probably split it into two main categories. I think the first one, as, as Maddie flagged there, is around member communications and using these targets to really help individuals understand how much they might need. So this could be in written communications like benefit statements so rather than just show members a number, we could say this equates to this standard of living, a medium, a minimum, moderate or comfortable, uh, and perhaps telling them how much they might need to contribute to get to the next, next living standard, or perhaps how long they might need to carry on working for. If, you know, if they retire at 60, they might have a minimum standard, but they could perhaps work to 65 and achieve a comfortable standard of living and sorts of things that could really help people make decisions. What we've already been looking at is incorporating them in member presentations and again, just getting these out there as rules of thumb to start trying to get people to think about how much they might need and think about a target, setting their own targets. And finally, in terms of our sort of member communications, as you'll be aware, Aon offer quite a lot of online tools as part of our DC solutions and sort of wider DC support. So we're looking at whether we can incorporate some of these targets into uh, projection tools. So when people are online looking at how much they might get back from their current pension saving level, equating that to one of the target uh, retirement target living standards to kind of get a feel for, again, not just a value of how much they have in retirement, but what style of standard of living does that equate to? Working on, on clients with scheme design, we already help trustees and sponsors understand how many people are on track for an adequate retirement but we don't really think about what adequate means in that context. So if we can help people by thinking about how many members are on track for a minimum level, how many members are on track for a moderate level of living in retirement, I think that's going to be really useful, particularly for schemes where there might be a large number of members who aren't going to hit that minimum standard based on their current design. They can then target action either around contribution design, making changes, does the company need to pay more, 
or around communications to individuals and explaining to people what sort of level of income they're on, on target for and helping members to make their own choices. Okay, sounds useful. So um, what's coming up next, both in terms of the, the retirement living standards and also target setting more generally? I think one of the things that's really going to help, which is on the horizon, is the pensions dashboard. So you may be familiar with this, but the idea is this is going to be a, a publicly available tool for all individuals to aggregate their all their pension saving across different schemes. Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit before in, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the podcast before. <laughs> Excellent. So the pension dashboard will really help members to understand how much um, pension saving they have and therefore how much of the retirement living standard can be made up from pensions income. Uh, bring it all together in one place. That's unless they're already using tools like Aon Money, which do the same with pension uh, savings, but also with wider savings as well to kind of build that bigger picture. Something our investment team are looking at, which is pretty groundbreaking, I've got to say, is looking at whether we can incorporate the living standards in our um, automated default investment design. So picture uh, an investment strategy that's aiming to get all members up to a certain living standard and actually locks in gains if people have made investment gains um, to achieve that standard rather than taking extra risk they don't need to. Can't say too much more on this at the moment because it's going to be launched officially at our pension conference series next year. So right. watch this space. I don't <laughs> want to give too much away. I'll be in trouble. And finally, I think we're just evolving how we use the targets and how we get members to use them to think about setting their own targets. So one client I work with have got a, quite a, a lofty ambition to try and get 40% of their workforce to have set their own personal retirement targets by the end of 2020. And so they're working with members and using the retirement living standards as a starting point to try and encourage people to think about their own target setting. And I think the final note that I'd like to add is that if adopted nationally, um, which is the ambition of the PLSA, um, the standards could go a long way in the quest to deliver consistent messages to savers, um, irrespective of the type of pension arrangement they're in, and ultimately reduce the degree of confusion and apathy that we so regularly see in pensions, um, as well as increase trust, really, uh, more generally in the pensions industry. Thank you very much to both of you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's everything for this month. Thanks again to my guests, Steve Lee and Maddie Kane, and thanks to you for listening. Christmas is coming up, so we'll be taking a short break, but assuming I can avoid any inappropriate behaviour in the company of undercover reporters, I'll be back the next episode at the beginning of February. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com. Mm-hmm.